This is an ABC podcast. Hi, it's All in the Mind on RN. I'm Lynn Malcolm. Have you ever had a particular feeling that you can't quite put into words? Well, what if that didn't exist in English, but it did exist in another language? Perhaps knowing that word would help you better understand your human experience and make you feel more connected to those in the world around you. These are called untranslatable emotions, and there's a global search with the seemingly impossible task of making a dictionary of them. Reporter Katie Silver guides us through these untranslatable emotions, beginning with an example from Norway. Here's Quandil. Okay, so I'll start with kus, which is a very common word in uh, Norway or Scandinavia generally. It means a state of lovely coziness, of warmth and intimacy. So you can feel kus on your own or you can feel it with people you like. It involves a happy and a fuzzy feeling inside. So you can kus in front of the telly or you can kus with a friend at a cafe or you can kus next to a crackling fireplace. And there's a word for that too called paiskus. So my mother tongue is Arabic. I grew up in Syria got few words that I find sometimes hard to translate into English. So the first one is tarab. It's a musically induced ecstasy or enchantment. It's a mental state that you achieve when you listen to classical Arabic music or matrub, which means he is in that mental state of mind. And it usually happens when you listen to musicians like Um Kalthum, who were famous back in the 60s and 70s. That you What's achieve. it feel like, that state of mind? It's ecstasy, it's enjoyment, it's euphoria, and it's just as a result of listening to classical Arabic music. And you achieve it over time. So, you know, because one song is an hour usually, and the more you listen, the more tarab you you have. So after half an hour, I was like, oh, matru, which means like he achieved this, this level of ecstasy. Kwandil from Norway and Suma from Syria are describing what are known as untranslatable emotions, emotions that have names in some languages but don't exist in others. It's a term brought to prominence by Tim Lomas, a lecturer of positive psychology at the University of East London. He says learning about these words is linked to positive psychology as it can positively affect our well-being by enriching our emotional experiences. He explains how he got into it. I was at a psychology conference in Orlando in 2015 and stumbled across this talk by a Finnish researcher, Amelia Lati, on this Finnish concept of sisu, which she described as this form of extraordinary courage or determination, especially in the face of adversity. But it's not easily rendered into that simple description. It's quite complex. And her whole PhD was, in fact, you know, looking at exactly its different dimensions and what it means to people. Tim became intrigued about the different emotions that words can carry in different cultures. I initially started off by doing a search myself, looking through journals and websites and so on. And that gave me a couple of hundred and then published that. And then it was really nice. People started writing to me with suggestions, which was Mm. kind of what I hoped would happen. People from all over the world getting in contact. Okay, so So, how many are you up to? So now, like, nearly 1,200. When I find these new words, they tend to fall into these two camps of old friends and mysterious strangers. And then old friends, uh, when I see a description, I almost immediately know that, the feeling or the experience in question. They're words from one country that have already 
had global migration, so to speak, or migration. Either that or the feeling is kind of common enough that even without the word, you would know what it meant. For example? Well, I mean, guess the classic example there is like schadenfreude. You hear that and you think, okay, I know probably most people know that feeling. And then, not that it's a friend, because it's a nasty experience, but I think you would recognise that one. Wanderlust, I guess, is one that's come up as well. Yeah, Wanderlust. Speaking is, of Germany. That's a great one. Huga in more recent years. Huga is another one. That's obviously become very popular. Maybe sometimes misinterpreted, misunderstood. It's not necessarily just about physical coziness. But at the same time, I do think it's a word that... So for, in case you've been living under a rock and haven't heard what huga <laughs> means, it's a Danish word that often conceptualises a love of being at home and enjoyment of things like lovely blankets yeah. and beautiful surroundings around home yeah. and enjoying that yeah. experience. Yeah, but it's like that's a really interesting concept too because it is that. But then people have suggested you can also feel it even being outside in a park with friends. So then what's that about? Because you're not in a cosy, mm. physically cosy environment, but maybe... Maybe it's about sort of coziness in one's heart. Maybe it's like an emotional safety and security in coziness. There's another Scandinavian one, Lagom, like doing things in moderation. And that's cool, I can get that. Or I think Fika is another one, like the coffee break. And you think, okay. Makes everyone want to move to Scandinavia, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely does. Yeah, Fika is about the enjoyment of the 3.34pm coffee yeah, break type exactly. thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, mm. and the kind of, this, this cultural ritual around that, and it's just a time out from the workday, and that becomes this celebrated thing that you do, and it's acknowledged as a standard part of the day to look forward to. The but, other culture yeah. that I think has some lovely words that make one wish to migrate is Italy. Yeah, absolutely. Like the passeggiata strolling perhaps early evenings, savouring the evening air, often with loved ones. But then I hear that and then I say it's an old friend because it immediately resonates and I like, I get it, I can understand what that means. Then there's the other category, these mysterious strangers, where even after they're described, even at some length, I'm really not sure because I probably haven't had that experience. I mean, how do you describe Nirvana or what that might be like? You know, you could read a book on it and still not get it. And, you know, because it's one of those things that how could I describe what it's like to taste coffee like unless you've tasted it? You can't put it into words and it doesn't make sense. But if you've tried it, then the description makes sense. So things are ineffable if you haven't had the relevant experience that the kind of label signifies. So something like Nirvana, I haven't. And even if you read a detailed description, like you're stepping out of the cycle of birth, death and rebirth, and it's this kind of permanent alleviation or cessation of suffering, then in an abstract sense, it's like, well, I understand those words, but the experience doesn't make sense to me. Tim Lomas has collected these words together and published his book, The Happiness Dictionary, last year. For him, by learning about these words, the boundaries of our world expand, which can make us happier. He says they may even allow us to encounter new feelings that we hadn't previously been aware of or enjoyed. Tim Lomas divides up these words between those he understands or has experienced and those he hasn't. To make sense of them, he's also worked out another way of categorising these 1,200 different emotions. I have done this thematic analysis. It becomes quite a detailed map, but there's basically six overarching themes, and I have positive feelings, ambivalent feelings, I have love, pro-sociality, 
and then character and then spirituality. And then each of them has six or seven sub-themes and then they have words within them. So it's this nice structure that's built up in that way. So love is one of the themes. For that, I grouped them into 14 different types or I gave it the word flavours, so flavours of love. Mm. More to imply that you can't pigeonhole any one relationship as being one type. It's more that any one relationship might be a mix of flavours. Well, I gave each of them a Greek label in English, we have the word love and it covers so many different types of experiences and feelings. But for example, many of the different languages have been a bit more specific in things like types of love. So the Greeks were quite prolific in that regard. Eros is one type, a deep romantic appreciation, perhaps, but for, you know, for art, for the world, for objects and for people. So it's broader than kind of just the sexual passion. But Eros is one and then terms like agape, which is more of this benevolent, compassionate, charitable type love. So which languages have the most varieties of types of love in the words you've noticed? Well, Greeks certainly seem to have a lot, but I'm also aware that my list is very incomplete. So there's many words out there I just haven't encountered and aren't on my list. I did give each flavour of love this Greek label, and then I could find lots of other nice words in other languages that would fit within that flavour. So agape, for example, there's a, a lovely term in Pali, which is kind of the language of the original Buddhist texts, uh, called metta, which is like a loving kindness. That's beautiful, and that's an interesting example of a word that we're starting to engage with in, you know, in the West and in psychology. What was the weirdest type of love you encountered? <laughs> is there any sort of words that mean like love for stationery or something? <laughs> no. I did have some terms for love of objects and experiences and places. One of the weird kinds of love is self-love. So one of the flavours was love for self, which when you think about it is weird because you're loving... You know, love implies, you know, a subject to an object or two people, but loving oneself, you're in a relationship with oneself. So that seems conceptually strange just to think of it. Mm. Did other languages, other English, have a concept of self-love? Well, so the, the French have two. They have amour propre and amour de soi. And there are subtle differences between them, I think. I have to check which way round these are. But one of them, it's, it's a slightly more kind of self-sufficient self-love, as in a certain disregard for what other people think and there's a confidence there. And then the other type, it's a bit more needful and reliant on other people's opinion. So Rousseau talked a lot about these two types of self-love. But I suppose we have self-love in English, but that's not a term we would regularly use. It's probably increasingly a term we would use, isn't it? You know, with this whole movement <laughs> of self-care. Exactly. I think people are becoming more and more aware of yeah. wanting to cultivate a sense of self-love. Absolutely, yeah. So another interesting form of love was pragma, which is, you know, the basis for pragmatism. To capture the idea that you can have a romantic relationship, but romance doesn't have to mean, for example, sexual passion. The way you might see a couple who've been together decades, and even if they don't have that sexual passion, but they have such a close bond and they're bringing up children, and that's a real deep form of love in itself that's quite sensible and negotiated almost in a way. Mm. So that was another nice example. Just a, I think it can refine our understanding of what it means to be in love. And so with love in particular, I found that doing this project helped me appreciate the subtleties of what that can mean. And there's just so many different ways of being in love. Tim Lomas from the University of East London. Quandil explains a particular type of love in Norway. 
forelsket, which in Norwegian means falling in love, really. But it's kind of not so similar to the English translation because it's still that early, intoxicating, euphoric feeling of starting to fall in love. So it's more than a crush, but it's less than love. Another interesting one has been the category of ambivalent feelings. You know, you think of well-being, you think of feelings that are positively valence and they're pleasant and so on. But there's a fascinating category of feelings that are positive and negative, dark and light, or they're mixed feelings. And these are complicated blends. Do we have any words in English, for example? A really good example is longing. I've heard a definition of longing as literally a combination of happiness and sadness. Mm. You know, because in longing there's something you care for and is dear to you and even if they're absent, they're present to you in your mind at that moment and you might be thinking of them and there's a lot of even joy in that experience. But at the same time, you're set apart from them for whatever reason, whether it's a person you're missing and they're away, you're away from your homeland, for example. It's a complicated feeling that you wouldn't call necessarily pleasant, but it's not Perhaps is that the reason you might spend some time listening to the songs that remind you of ex-loves and there's sort of a, a joy <laughs> well, in, yeah. in the mellowing in that sadness? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole area of research on why people like listening to sad music, for example, and that's related to this. And these feelings are complicated. They can be melancholy or sorrowful, but at the same time it's like part of our identity or, and who we are. So there's so many interesting words. For example, with this category of longing, there's quite a few that are attached to specific places. There's a Portuguese term, saudade. I'm very aware now of how difficult it is to describe these. I mean, these being untranslatable anyway. Because a longing for a homeland that's often specifically tied to Portugal and Brazil, specifically. But it can also be for other times and other places, and even the sense that you can't get back to those times, but they're part of who you are. You can find that in other languages. Like Welsh have the term hiraith. My name is Yolo James. I am from a place called Llantrisant in South Wales, about 10 miles north of Cardiff. It's actually where the Royal Mint is in the UK. So Hiraith, it's one of those difficult ones to describe really. It's more of a longing to a place maybe that once was or to a place where your spirit lives. The place maybe where your spirit feels at home. There's a particularly poignant interpretation of the word Hiraith. It's by a woman called Val Bethel and it goes something like this. Hiraith is in the mountains where the wind speaks in many tongues and the buzzards fly on silent wings. It's the call of my spiritual home. It's where ancient peoples made their home. We're high on a hill where saints bathed sore feet in a healing spring and had a cure. Hiraith, the link with a long forgotten past, the language of the soul, the call from the inner self, half forgotten, fraction remembered. It speaks from the rocks, from the earth, from the trees, and in the waves. It's always there. You're with All in the Mind on RN. I'm Lynne Malcolm. Today, reporter Katie Silver is exploring how the words we use in different languages and cultures can shape our thought and emotions. Katie has been on a linguistic worldwide tour, speaking to people with different backgrounds and cultures about their untranslatable emotions. Hello, I'm Sergi. Um, I was born and raised in Barcelona and my mother tongues are Catalan and Spanish. And I'm now going to talk about uh, first a Spanish expression, which is called tener duende. 
tener duende. Duende literally means um, an elf. So tener duende would be having an elf. But it's something like having soul or being authentic, special, uh, magic. So you can have duende as a person if you uh, have a talent. Um, so if you um, know how to dance flamenco very well and when someone looks at you dancing, you're like, oh, this person tiene duende when dancing uh, flamenco. But you can also look at a piece of art and say, oh, this is great, you know, this has duende. So it's something, yeah, emotional, special, magic, and tener duende is something positive that maybe you want to have. For Tim Lomas, certain emotions particularly have duende to him. I love finding the Japanese words too. So they have a lot of interesting terms relating to Buddhism and Zen Buddhism specifically. For example, terms around aesthetics and appreciation, impermanence and transiency and the changing nature of the world. One concept is um, mono no owari, which I think kind of refers to the ephemerality of life and of things and their impermanence, but and also the sense that that very kind of impermanence accentuates its beauty. So the symbol there is the cherry blossoms, you know, because they come and they're so magnificent and they just last two weeks and then they're gone. And then somehow that transiency even heightens their beauty, whereas if they were just there the whole time, we would acclimatise and accommodate them. Then that's also counterbalanced by this other one, a term called wabi-sabi, which is another term that's kind of finding its way into the West and other cultures. And I think that also seems to relate to the passage of time, but in a different way. So rather than it accentuating the ephemerality, it's like, well, even as things change and age, there's this kind of grandeur and dignity in that changing and in that ageing. So it's the way that objects or entities that are old or worn or weathered still have this kind of mystery and this beauty and this dignity, whether it's like a, a, an old tree or a ruined castle, and there's a real profundity and a depth there. And it seems to be this nice counterbalance to Mononowari. Having learnt them, I do think that's enriched my world and my understanding of the world by taking on those concepts. You know, if I see a cherry blossom tree, as opposed to simply just thinking... Hey, that's beautiful. As I might have done, you can see these layers of depth to that experience and what other people have had in relation to that experience. And so what has it taught you about the way humans feel things, our emotional diversity, the breadth in which we can feel different things? This collection of words and I guess this experience you've had in terms of collecting them, what have been the takeaways in terms of human experience? I suppose I could say from a theoretical perspective, there's the background here of the linguistic relativity hypothesis, Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. This idea that our experience is shaped or mediated by our culture and you know, specifically by our language. So the linguistic frames through which we see the world influences our perception and our understanding and our conceptualisation. There's a really interesting debate about the extent to which it does. Does it determine it? Does it simply shape it? I veer away from the idea that it's so tightly constrained that experience is inextricably determined by language because I think we can experience things for which you don't have the linguistic tools that are ineffable that we can't put into words. That's partly the goal of this project, isn't it? That yeah. you're trying to allow people to give words to emotions they may feel yeah. that they didn't previously have words for. Yeah, that's definitely part of it, because I think that certainly can be the case that much of our experience is, if not ineffable, then difficult to put into words, and we work with the as best we can with the words that we have at our disposal from our own language, but it is often the case that an experience, there isn't a perfect label for it, but it can often be the case that another language might have something that may be relevant. 
The idea is that by having a greater number of words to label our emotions, we can improve what's known as our emotional granularity. It's a complex term, but basically, someone with high emotional granularity is better able to differentiate between emotions, such as anger, despair or anxiety, rather than just labelling them all as bad or unpleasant. And research has found that people with high emotional granularity can recover better from stress and are less likely to drink alcohol as a way of coping with bad news. In research on children, teaching a rich emotional vocabulary is even associated with improving their end-of-year grades and promoting better behaviour. Tim Lomas says by giving words to certain behaviours, it can even justify specific therapies. There's a nice Japanese word called shinrin-yoku, which sort of could be rendered as like forest bathing, but it means kind of being in the you know, tranquility of natural environments, like soaking up their therapeutic benefit. You know, it's like if you're in a word, then it's just very peaceful and relaxing, but then, you know, it's recognised as having these then therapeutic benefits, and it's been harnessed, in fact, in that way in Japan as a kind of a prescribed activity for certain, you know, conditions and just as a generally beneficial therapeutic exercise. Mm. So, but you give a name to something, and then all of a sudden it becomes a definite activity that could be undertaken, and then to the extent that, like, a, you know, a doctor or a therapist might recommend that, as opposed to this nebulous idea, you wouldn't say, well, you know, go and walk in the woods, but if this is thing has a label, then perhaps it's more likely to be kind of followed and engaged in. Dr Lomas says in certain countries, people are inventing words to describe new emotional conditions or feelings. The Swedes have coined this word, flugstum. It's, you know, about this kind of sense of anxiety people might have in relation to flying. Not from a kind of fear of flying, but more like a, an environmental concern type anxiety. Mm. Um, concern in relation to the climate and the environment and what we're doing by flying. And it's kind of almost handy because if you have that, then it, it's out there as a phenomenon saying, well, labelling something that might be to people's tongues or at the back of their minds, but actually they might recognise this common feeling by naming it. And there's even a global project to create words for emotions. It's called the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows and is the brainchild of John Koenig, a graphic designer from Minnesota. Using Greek etymology as a base, Mr Koenig has invented a host of new words. Tim Lomas told me some. Opia, the ambiguous intensity of eye contact. <laughs> and, and that's really interesting. Anything when you, yes. you know, there's eye contact and it can be like... So it's, it's that eye contact that goes for just a split second longer than one wishes? Or even mm. just general eye contact mm-hmm. can be kind of a bit unnerving. You're not sure mm. what someone's feeling, what the connection is, mm. or, you know, kind of just the mystery of looking in someone's eyes, say. And then, so he's taken... Oh, I, I love think, that you know, one. It's a cool one, isn't it? Mm. So like, mm. And there's another one, Sonder. And Sonder's one, actually, that some people just write to me, have you heard of this word? And it's actually his creation, but it's a nice one. It's something about realising that everyone has an inner life as rich as your own, and that realisation. It's almost um, theory of mind, but the next level. Yeah, yeah. And his whole project is just full of these words, and he has these beautifully made videos and kind of audio descriptions. Obviously, it's not a complete list and may never be a complete list, which yeah. I appreciate might Always be frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> but how does a certain countries seemingly potentially more happy than others? In some of your research, you're finding that you know certain languages, for example, have more terms for happiness, that that can provide them a greater experience of happiness. And um, how does language potentially influence that? 
Oh, that's a good question. The short answer is that in doing this project, I've always tried to refrain from making generalizations about any particular country or culture based on my words, partly because the list is very incomplete. So there could just be a whole bunch of words in another language that I haven't come across. And also because I just think places and people are heterogeneous and complex. But at the same time, you think that there are studies that do try to compare countries, say, in terms of happiness, and the Nordic countries often come out near the top. And then you can think, well, why is that? And is that reflected, for example, in their language? Reflected in their language, or is it a product of their language? Exactly, yes. You know, we, think we talk a lot yes. about Scandinavia's fabulous social welfare systems. Yes, exactly. But is it- and you've got to think that's going to be probably bi-directional, so the language will influence it, and then it influences the language. So, for example, when people think of the Nordic countries, a lot of it is about their degree of you know, social cohesion, social capital, how collected they are. And there are a lot of interesting words in those languages relating to that kind of collective endeavour, collective spirit. In Finnish, it's a talkut, or maybe that's a talko in Swedish too. It's a kind of a collective endeavour. That was Tim Lomas, lecturer in positive psychology at the University of East London. Tim is the author of numerous books, including most recently, Translating Happiness and The Happiness Dictionary. If you'd like to contribute to his work, he's recently launched The Happy Words Project. He's hoping people will record short videos on their phones describing these untranslatable emotions. It's wonderful, it's wonderful, I dream of you, chips, chips. Thanks to our reporter from London, Katie Silver. Our producer is Diane Dean and the sound engineer today is John Jacobs. I'm Lynn Malcolm. It's been great to have your company. Bye, till next time.